0: In the progression of this discourse of the Buddha, he now repeats the steps that he has taught to Puttapada and he says, then equipped with this noble morality, with the noble restraint of the senses, with noble mindfulness and clear comprehension and with this noble contentment one finds a solitary lodging at the root of a forest tree in a mountain cave or gorge a charnel ground a jungle thicket or in the open air on a heap of straw and then one sits down cross-legged holding the body erect, and concentrates on establishing mindfulness. So now we have come to the meditation part, but we will find in a moment that he also says, before one can meditate, one has to do some other things. One should sit down and do all this, but there will other things be necessary and we'll see that in a moment having firmly established mindfulness now having firmly established mindfulness anapanasati mindfulness of in-breath out-breath but before that can really result in any significant change of consciousness which meditation brings about the necessity arises to abandon the five hindrances I have briefly mentioned them during the last week and here they are again mentioned quite in detail so I'll talk about them a little more in detail First, they're just all listed, and what it says is, abandoning worldly desires. He dwells with a mind freed from worldly desires, and the mind is purified of them. That's the first hindrance. Worldly desire its called here. It's very often called the desire for sensual gratification. In order to meditate, obviously, we can't have any of those things in the mind. We need to make a determination to let all that go. What are the worldly desires that beset a meditator? Very often they are it's too cold, it's too hot. My knees hurt, my back's uncomfortable. I'm hungry, I'm too full. I'm thirsty, I don't feel good. I should sleep. All of these are worldly desires. And they enter into the mind and stop one from meditating. They enter into the mind while meditating and they also enter into the mind before one actually gets down to the meditation hall. And if they do, then, of course, meditation is stopped. The Buddha gives similes for all these, and I will read them out as we go along. And I have mentioned already that when we do get to full concentration, we have an automatic antidote. We have an automatic antidote against worldly desires, sensual desires. Everything that's connected with our senses is world. The two are synonymous. Worldly desires, sensual desires, the same thing. Whatever comes in through the senses has to come from the world. So, the only thing that doesn't come from the world is when we have our inner experience, which we can have through the meditation. The joy which arises through full concentration is An automatic antidote against that and the one-pointedness in meditation is another aspect that helps us to get rid of or not to pay attention to I should say worldly desires. If the mind is one-pointed, no worldly desire can enter neither a desire for food or for comfort or for warmth or for any physical um, matters or for the things which are far away and which we would like to have near or those which are near and we'd like to have far away nothing like that can enter because we're one-pointed so the more often we become one-pointed the less we have to hassle with those desires and if you remember what I explained about the first and second noble truths, you will remember that there's only one cause for dukkha one only and that's desire wanting it or wanting to get rid of and the more we want something the more dukkha we've got and the more we want to get rid of something, the more dukkha we've got. So even think, sitting there and thinking, I want a good meditation, is a worldly desire. Because it is a thought. And we cannot think meditation. So it's a worldly desire to sit there and, and think to oneself, I want a good meditation, I want to have a blissful meditation, I want to be a good meditator, I want to... whatever it is. All of these create dukkha. And we will see in a moment that one can't meditate with dukkha. I have mentioned it several times already, but now we can see what the Buddha has to say about it. Worldly desire is again related to the fact that we think we're going to get happiness through our sense contacts. Obviously, there are moments of delight, and that's fine. But when our mind goes around trying to find the one particular sense contact, which we think is going to bring us happiness we are blocking our way to the meditation we're blocking our way to the purification we're blocking our way to the way out of dukkha if we're searching around for the gratification of a desire we are immersed in dukkha it's totally unnecessary All we have to do is drop it. It's easily said. One has to work at it. But if we have finally recognized the arising of our own dukkha, we will undoubtedly be able to also recognize how to make it cease. So we can work at dropping desires the less desires there are, the less dukkha it's as simple as that contentment is one of the antidotes when we know that our meditation can only work if we don't have all these thoughts in the mind about worldly things and we see how they have arisen through desire, we may be able to also figure out how to make them cease Dropping the desire It's simple to explain It's not that simple to do, but it's not that difficult either It's a matter of willpower It's a matter of, okay, I understand, so I will do it now. And then, when we do it, we see the results. It's not this tight, intense, wishing for results, that's Dukkha. Tightness and tension are Dukkha, because they arise out of desire. I want something, I really want it I want it so bad I can taste it we say well there we've got a real worldly desire let go drop it there's nothing to be desired there's everything to be done and that's a big difference between desire and doing actually getting in there, and doing it. So that's our first hindrance, which is called here worldly desire, usually called the desire for sensual gratification. Either way, senses and world are the same. Abandoning ill-will and hatred, and by compassionate love for the welfare of all living beings, His mind is purified of ill-will and hatred. I have already mentioned many times, and I'm sure you remember that, one should start each meditation with loving-kindness, particularly for oneself. If that isn't enough to make the mind at ease for the people that one has, dealings with, which are near to one. The more we abandon any ill will and hatred the easier it is to meditate. In fact, I have already said, and this is what the Buddha says about it, a mind which has ill will and hatred and is aware of it at the time of meditation cannot possibly meditate. A mind which is aware of love and compassion and imbued with it, can meditate. Love and compassion are a giving of oneself. One gives oneself in love and compassion to others. One has to give oneself to the meditation totally, without any holding back, oneself immersed in that, what's the meditation subject, no bits and pieces left out, no parts of me which would like to solve some problems or are figuring out how I can get my desire in spite of everything the Buddha said Just giving oneself to it. There's a discourse by the Buddha where he talks about a war elephant. In the days of the Buddha, the elephants were what other tanks are now, and elephants instead of tanks. And he talks about the royal elephant that goes to war with the king. And he says, when the elephant just uses his paws, he's not a royal elephant. Or if he only uses his head and goes forward only with that, but protects his body, he's not a royal elephant. Or if he only goes forward with his trunk and protects the rest of the body, he's not a royal elephant. Only if he goes forward into war for the king with his whole body from trunk to head to paws to to body then he can be called a royal elephant and the simile means giving oneself completely no bits and pieces left out and this is usually the drawback which happens in meditation the bits and pieces left out, namely the thought what am I going to get out of this meditation? How am I going to get it to the point where I want it? Is this really the right teaching? Can I really do it? Are there other ways of getting rid of Dukkha? Why can't I get rid of Dukkha by getting my desire? That's a very popular one. Last one. All these things are keeping part of oneself totally separate from the meditation. When the mind is unified, one pointed so that worldly desires cannot arise, it's unified also in its aspect of going into the meditation subject and becoming the meditation subject. Not being an observer, but being the experiencer, and then being the experience. Being the experience makes full concentration happen. So obviously, love and compassionate love for the welfare of all living beings is necessary for the meditation. So start with loving-kindness for yourself in any manner or form that works for you. We have done many different ones so far already. If you can think of something better, please use it. These are only suggestions. If any of the ones we have done are working for you well, please use it. Some people find it very difficult to love themselves. If one has difficulty loving oneself, obviously one has difficulty letting go of desires, because one is of the opinion that the gratified desire will bring about that missing link. Namely, that inner love for oneself. No way it will ever do that. A gratified desire only brings more dukkha because it has to be gratified again. So the missing link is not gratifying one's desires. The missing link is loving oneself. And loving oneself in spite of everything one knows about oneself because only then is one going to be able to love everybody else in spite of everything one knows about them perfectionism has no place in loving-kindness nothing is perfect on a worldly level will never be and has never been so that too dropping that idea of perfectionism gives a great deal of relaxed feeling where the tension and the tightness of wanting is let go. Loving oneself if we find it difficult there are two ways which usually work no guarantees of course but they usually work. One is to bring up the um, feeling for one's most beloved person and then transfer that to oneself. The feeling for that most beloved person must not be connected with desire. If it's connected with desire, it doesn't work. If it's a pure feeling of embracing and caring, of wanting to help, of feeling together and connected, then it does work. The other possibility is to remember all the good things one has done in this life. In Pali that's called dana nusanti. And that remembrance, bringing it up now, puts it into the present and being in the present One can feel at ease about oneself. And the person who has done all these good deeds is the one we can love. These are two possibilities. There are many others. Whichever works for you, use it. And then, after having done it for yourself, think of the multitude of beings on this globe, all of them searching for peace and happiness and very, very few having found it. And then, have compassion for the welfare of all beings. Very important beginning for meditation. (coughs) Abandoning sloth and torpor, perceiving light, mindful and clearly aware, his mind is purified of sloth and torpor, loss and torpor laziness and drowsiness and here the idea is given to perceive light now there are two ways of doing that if the mind is already completely drowsy and one is on the verge of really falling asleep the best thing to do is open the eyes and look at the light And having done that, and having woken up again, then to try and take that light that one has seen into oneself without the eyes open, with closed eyes. It's not difficult. When one has seen a light, particularly a bright one, and then closes one's eyes, one can keep that brightness within. With that brightness the drowsiness, the laziness of the mind the lack of motivation the lack of real and right effort usually disappears right effort is not tension and tightness right effort is just being there awake and aware If the mind is drowsy in the meditation, it's not knowing exactly what's going on. It's sort of slithering around like it's on a on on doesn't can't really take a real stand but as if the ground on which the mind stands has been waxed and the mind just slithers from here to there. It doesn't go to definite thinking, but it doesn't have any hold on the meditation subject. That's sloth and torpor. That's a time to stop oneself, not to continue. One is tempted to continue because it's pleasant. One is hardly aware of the dukkha because the mind is hardly aware. And It just sort of reverts to a state of mind which is neither sleep nor awake. It's in between and therefore quite pleasant. It's very important to get oneself out of that immediately because it's a waste of time. And as I said, open the eyes, look at the light, move the body to encourage blood circulation, Pull one's ear lobes, rub one's cheeks and if nothing helps stand up most people don't fall asleep standing up and then give yourself a pep talk this is the time to do it all the conditions are here there's a teacher there's a teaching there's a quiet and stillness There's a beautiful place. All the food is being given. Nothing better could ever happen. The companions on the spiritual path are with me. The time that I have here is limited. Let me make the best of it. Let me make the best of it. That's sufficient. Not let me get something but making the best of it is giving one's best. The perception of light within, when it comes spontaneously, is usually a sign that concentration has started. But one can voluntarily arouse the perception of light and one should do that if one feels that the mind is very often not quite with it and that does happen in meditation courses that the mind just sort of well it stops itself from being really attentive it either has lost its momentum never had it. It can't remember why one is meditating. All of these things can be aroused again. If we put light in the mind it can be very helpful because it illuminates all the dark corners and in those dark corners we find a lot of hindrances for our meditation. The next one is called Worry and Flurry. (laughs) (laughs) Usually it's called Restlessness and Worry. Abandoning Worry and Flurry, so Restlessness and Worry. hmm? And with an inwardly calmed mind, the heart is purified of restlessness and worry. An inwardly calmed mind. One needs to really look at that. One wants to become calm through the meditation, but obviously the Buddha says one has to be calm before one can actually meditate. So what we have here is an injunction to recognize when there's agitation in the mind. And if there is agitation in the mind, to find the reason for it. Why is there agitation? Why is there not inner calm? What is arising in me, which desire, that's all it can be, there is nothing else that can arise, it's got to be desire, so what's making me restless, so that the mind cannot stay in one place, and very often when the mind can't stay in one place, it also generates to the body, and then the body can't stay in one place. And then the body becomes restless. So what we end up with is practically no meditation, just restlessness. Restlessness arises out of the fact that we haven't got what we want. So have a look. What is it I desire? There is agitation in the mind. And then realize that the desire for it isn't going to make it happen. (coughs) Unless it's something one can buy. And most meditators do not have that in mind. They've got other things in mind. If it's something one can buy, well, if one has the sufficient cash, one can usually get it. But that isn't very helpful, is it? So, what is the desire that's making me restless? And then have a look. Can I get it through this desire? Is this actually going to be gratified? Or, will I be able to drop this desire, get rid of the dukkha, and the restlessness that is entailed through it, and actually calm the mind? (coughs) But here, there's also another thing which is interesting in this sentence, namely, it says, with an inwardly calmed mind, the heart is purified. So, what we're talking about is not just that the mind stops thinking about all the things that it's concerned with, but the emotions are purified. When there's no desire, then the emotions... Are equanimous, there's even mindedness, there's a feeling of being at ease, of having a place in this universe, being connected to all that's around one, and not feeling agitated about the things that are missing. In principle, nothing is missing we all have everything that we need we just have ideas if we could drop the ideas the quicker the better the easier we could meditate just our ideas and also the idea that we could get calm through an outside source Calm is within us and we can get it if we drop the outside sources with which we are connected through our thinking. So the heart is purified and the mind is calmed if we recognize that restlessness and worry does not have any real bearing on our life it's only connected to desire now worry is very often about the future and a desire that the future should be the way we figure it out it obviously is an absurd way of living because if we think about the future we're making our present disappear and that's the only thing that really counts, the present And the restlessness is caused by the fact that we have not found what we really want within. Since we now know through the Buddhist teaching that that what we want exists within us, we might find it easier to drop the restlessness. Sometimes people Think that they have an awful lot of things to do. In fact, most people think that. There's hardly anybody that doesn't. It's very interesting to find out that one has actually brought that about oneself through restlessness. Nobody has anything to do that he or she hasn't latched onto by him or herself it's what we want to do even though afterwards we complain it's too much but we want to do it we want to do it because it gives us a sense of importance and it gives us a sense of actually being somebody so restlessness is also a, a great difficulty in one's worldly life because it brings one usually to so many situations that one has to deal with that in the end one feels overwhelmed see it for what it is, a hindrance and mind you, these hindrances, every human being has them nobody has a monopoly but each person has a particular hindrance which is more of an enemy than the others it's good to find that if sloth and torpor is a particular enemy arouse the perception of light if hate is a particular enemy arouse loving-kindness if sensual desire is a particular enemy see the dukkha that's involved and try to let go And if restlessness and worry are the particular enemy, then see that it's connected to not having what one wants, and drop that. And you will see that the restlessness goes, and that it's very much also connected to one's desire to have a certain place and a certain image. A certain place in this world and a certain image. Everybody works at that. It's a really unnecessary endeavour and it's very hard to get because everybody else is working at the same thing. So we'll get onto controversies about it. But see that also as a reason for restlessness. And the next one is abandoning doubt. He dwells with doubt left behind, without uncertainty, as to what things are wholesome, his mind is purified of doubt. So here the explanation is given that one has to know what is wholesome. One also has to know what one should concern oneself with. One should concern oneself with those things which are conducive to the goal. Now that comes later in the Sutta. Puttapada asks questions again later and asks the Buddha, why don't you talk about this and about this and that, different things. And the Buddha says, because they're not connected to the goal. The goal, obviously, is enlightenment, which means full insight. And at this point in the Sutta, we are uh, are concerned with calm with the calm meditation. So that's the goal at this point. So doubt as to what can produce calm meditation. we let go of that. We also have to let go of the doubt that we can do it ourselves. That it's not too difficult for us. And we have to let go of the doubt that the instructions should be followed. Long years of experience have shown that those people who follow instructions make, have excellent results. But that also means that not everybody does that. A lot of people follow their own ideas and the results are questionable to say the least. These are the instructions of a two and a half thousand year old tradition totally trustworthy totally reliable have worked over and over again one's own ideas are based on viewpoints and those are neither reliable nor trustworthy they are connected with image and with a place of this person in the world so I can only urge you to take those instructions in and follow them. Follow them as far as the meditation procedure is concerned, and follow them in a way which does not leave room for doubt. And don't use the mind to try to conjure up all sorts of possibilities which might prove that the Buddha didn't know everything. (coughs) That's a favorite pastime, particularly when the meditation doesn't work. There must be something wrong. So, it's not wrong with me, obviously, because I'm trying. So there must be something wrong outside of me. So, possibly, the Buddha didn't know everything. Excuse me. (coughs) (coughs) Doubt is an insidious enemy. Doubt in the Buddha, in the Dhamma, in the Sangha, in the teacher, in one's own abilities, in the instructions in the whole aspect of the teaching all of these doubts make it impossible to meditate as not just hard makes it impossible because the mind is busy with extraneous matter if you want to meditate which obviously we do, we have to drop all that. We have to drop also the tightness and the tension of wanting, the idea of perfection. We have to drop, in fact, all ideas and just be there. Doubt makes it very difficult to have a total commitment and dedication to a spiritual path. Without commitment and dedication, the spiritual path doesn't work. Doubt makes one go from one kind of teaching to another and makes one leave the teaching altogether, makes one try out new things because one can't commit oneself. Committing oneself means giving oneself. Giving oneself means that one has actually found confidence within one's heart. In another sutta, the Buddha speaks about the prerequisites for meditation. First one is knowing one's own dukkha and where it comes from. Easy, from desire recognizing it knowing how it works in one's own life then having heard the teaching gaining confidence confidence that this path can be used and then the third step the joy of being able to have that opportunity to actually go on the path and only then meditation will work joy has to be an ingredient not worldly joy necessarily about all the things one has but that can be helpful or even the joy of seeing beautiful flower that can also be helpful the best joy is the one that arises out of the fact that one knows, one has found the most wonderful teaching, the highest ideal, that which is a cause for real rejoicing, and that one is trying to get nearer and nearer to it. That's the real helpful joy but any joy will help for meditation if one sits down with the idea oh another meditation session and uh, it's too cold anyway I think I'll go to bed or anything like that obviously one can't meditate there's got to be that kind of feeling of upliftment in the mind strength in the mind. Obviously, we get strength through meditation, but we have to bring some of it with us already. Now, these are the five hindrances. Worldly desires, or desire for sensual gratification, ill will and hatred, sloth and torpor, or laziness and drowsiness, restlessness and worry, and skeptical doubt. And in order to meditate, we have to let go of them. That does not mean that they will be uprooted. But if you think of weeds in a garden, if you cut them down over and over again, they don't have the strength that they used to have, and their root system becomes weaker. And they also don't overshadow the good plants. We can only uproot them when we have found enough strength within us. It's the same with the hindrances. We don't uproot them through the meditation, but we cut them down. Only if we cut them down will we be able to meditate and the root system becomes weaker so that eventually we can get rid of them. what we need to do is at the beginning of meditation to check our mind whether we have all these extraneous thoughts are we having thoughts of doubt are we having thoughts of ill will are we having restlessness and worry or desires and can we drop them and then use the antidotes of loving-kindness and of calming the mind maybe through telling yourself that there's nothing to gain everything is to get rid of Just as a man who had taken a loan to develop his business and whose business had prospered might pay off his old debts and with what was left over, could support a wife, might think, before this, I developed my business by borrowing, but now it has prospered, and he would rejoice, and be glad about that. This is a simile for essential desire. We are in debt to our senses, our sense contacts. We have to renew them we have to repay them (coughs) and if that's all we know that's all we're concerned with and should we actually not get the sense contact which we have been hoping for or desiring we can get very unhappy very angry at something or someone. And none of it makes any sense. Excuse me. (coughs) Because what comes in through our senses, be it sight, or be it sound, smell, taste, or touch, or thought, none of that, we can retain. All of it comes and goes, arises and ceases and is dependent upon outer conditions over which we have very little jurisdiction if any, at all. So this having taken a loan and being in debt too means that we are constantly worried about, or looking for, the pleasant sense contact. And when it finishes, we have to get it again. So having realized that this is totally unnecessary, it is like having paid off one's loan, one feels relieved, no debt, No debt to the senses. And he says here the person would rejoice and be glad about it. The great feeling of security and independence if one knows, one doesn't have to follow one's sensual desires. The feeling is one of relieving a burden losing a burden. As long as we follow our essential desires, we are in a constant state of agitation. The next simile, just as a man who was ill, suffering, terribly sick, with no appetite, and weak in body, might, after a time, recover, and regain his appetite and bodily strength, and he might think, Before this, I was ill, and he would rejoice and be glad about that. Illness is a simile for ill will. Illness, ill will, and hatred. It's like a sickness. It feels awful. Everybody knows what being angry feels like. Hot. Overwhelmed. Biting most unpleasant, to say the least. And that's why it's said that the people who have a lot of ill will are the best practitioners because they don't feel good. The Buddha also compares it to a bilious disease, the bile coming up. Anger is, or ill will, is part and parcel of our unwholesome roots hate greed and delusion but we do have the other three love generosity and wisdom It's entirely up to us which ones we develop we've all got all six Delusion means the illusion that there is an individual here, an individual entity called me, which needs to be protected and supported, looked after and cared for, and has so many needs which. Need to, which have to be met with all that delusion obviously there's hate when one can't get what one thinks one has to have and greed if one hasn't had it yet and wants to get it hate and greed are the outcome of delusion but we can't attack delusion by itself because hate and greed are overpowering and they are, sort of, covering over our possibility of seeing the delusion. So we've got to attack hate and greed. So in this case here, we let go for the meditation time. And if there's anything in particular that we dislike or hate, or anyone in particular, we can start our meditation by saying to ourselves, I'm going to let go of that for the next hour. And then everyone is welcome to pick it up again and have the same hate one had before. But if one doesn't let it go for that hour or 45 minutes, then that hour is also not going to work. So, letting go of hate is like letting go of an illness one feels well a sense of well-being and a sense of well-being is the very first instance of the first jhana and obviously a sense of well-being can only arise if there is no ill-will ill-will cannot produce a sense of well-being it can only produce the opposite again Don't forget loving-kindness for yourself to start every meditation with. Just as a man might be bound in prison, and after a time he might be freed from his bonds without any loss, with no deduction from his possessions, he might think, before this I was in prison, and he would rejoice and be glad about that. This is a simile, being in prison for sloth and torpor, when the mind sinks, the body usually sinks with it. It's sort of a feeling of, like that. One goes to prison. One can't do anything. Although one has the key oneself to open that prison door, but while one is in it, nothing at all happens. So, as one has the key, one can unlock. But that takes, if it is a bad case of sloth and topper, eh? it takes quite a bit of right effort to talk to oneself to bring up the necessary joy and effort and feeling of being uplifted when joy and effort are there. When joy and effort are there the mind feels as if it has been inspired and with an inspired mind one can meditate. With a mind that's in prison one can't, obviously because prison is not the right place for that. The Buddha also said it's helpful to know more about the Dhamma if one has that kind of difficulty. But one of the things which also help if there is a great deal of that difficulty, one can be the judge of that oneself whether one has that sloth and torpor difficulty, eating less. Food makes one heavy. So eating less helps to combat sloth and torpor and to give oneself the inspiration recognizing the joyful aspect of being connected to the highest ideal. The next simile Just as a man might be a slave, not his own master, dependent on another, unable to go where he liked, And after some time might be freed from slavery, able to go where he liked, might think, before this I was a slave, and he would rejoice and be glad about that. Restlessness and worry are compared to being a slave. One is being pushed around by them. If one is restless, one is being pushed here and there, and as I said, usually to doing too many things which then, again, result in feeling overburdened and worry does the same to one one isn't free one isn't free to think independently a meditator must become an independent thinker not trying to think out the Buddha's instructions we don't have to do that, they're there we are very lucky, we have them we just have to follow them but an independent thinker in seeing the connection between the different parts of the teaching how it all fits together at first it seems to be like a jigsaw puzzle with all separate pieces and one can't see the picture but eventually one can put all the bits and pieces together and one sees the beauty of the whole a meditator needs to do that and as we become independent thinkers we will see that restlessness and worry are nothing but worldly things which beset the mind and take us away from the path. so then we are no longer a slave just as a man laden with goods and wealth might go on a long journey through the desert where food was scarce and danger abounded and after a time he would get through the desert and arrive safe and sound at the edge of a village might think before this I was in danger now I'm safe at the edge of a village and he would rejoice and be glad about that traveling through the desert and uh, with scarce food, and having a lot of goods with him, he is in danger on that long journey. But then he arrives, and that's the simile for skeptical doubt. For doubting that which is helpful for meditation. The Buddha did not want anyone to believe what he said. He wanted everyone to try it out who who was interested. If we try it out, we will see what's connected to the goal and what isn't. And as we try it out, we will find that through the practice our understanding widens, enlarges, because the mind becomes malleable, flexible pliable and therefore knows far more so the uh, doubting is like being in danger in danger of not doing the work investigating is trying to find out one's own aspect concerning what is being taught where am I in this what should I do what shouldn't I do and that's trying it out so doubt is not the um, opposite of belief belief is not sponsored by the Buddha. But we need to have enough confidence so that we can go ahead. If we allow too many things to enter the mind, which have no bearing on what we're doing, then the doubting mind will not be able to become one-pointed. And now comes the um, uh, repetition of the similes as long as as one does not perceive the disappearance of the five hindrances one feels as if one is in debt in sickness in bonds in slavery on a desert journey but when one perceives the disappearance of the five hindrances it is as if one is freed from debt from sickness, from bonds, from slavery, from the perils of the desert. And again, I like to mention they're not uprooted. But they have to be. Put aside for the time of meditation. Loving kindness is one of the greatest boons we can have being able to give ourselves the commitment, the dedication not keeping oneself back all that helps enormously and not allowing the mind to go off on tangents even though we might believe that the tangent belongs to the Dhamma if it doesn't concern with the goal it's a tangent so these are Necessary steps we need to take so that the meditation can actually flourish. Then, next step after that is the explanation of the first jhana. And you will hear about that tomorrow in the words of the Buddha as he described it. I have already spoken about it in during the last week but it's, I think it's quite important to know what the Buddha himself said about it because you might even get the idea that I have dreamt it up. Mm-hmm. So here are then the words of the Buddha which we'll hear tomorrow. All of these things that are being said here and that the Buddha uh, told to Pratapada, are the practice path graduated teaching step after step and as we take step after step it only works if each step that is taken actually comes to fruition there's no way we can jump ahead some people can do it quickly karmic resultants of former lives, or whatever. But they've got to be taken. Each step. Otherwise the Buddha wouldn't have taught them. As no possibility of just leaving something out and saying, oh well, that's not important. Or, oh I can do that anyway. Or, oh, I'll do that later. I want to get to first jhana. I'll do that later. It doesn't work. Some of the steps we have already taken in our lives and so taking it now only takes a moment to recognize it within oneself. If we haven't taken them in our lives, we'd take them now, here. Mindfulness, how much of it have we got? Do we need to add to it? we have the opportunity here. Getting rid of sensual desire, getting rid of restlessness. How much have we done already? We might have done quite a lot of it and be able to sit down and get concentrated. If we can't, we've got to work with these. Step after step. In a situation such as this, where we have the opportunity to meditate often and it's quiet, It's not difficult to take these steps while we're here and get to the concentration. It's been done over and over again. But we mustn't think that they don't apply to us. They apply to everyone, except the Arahant, of course. And they don't usually come to meditation courses.